Hi everybody, welcome to ABC News Live. I'm Whit Johnson. We're going to talk to correspondents covering the biggest stories happening around the world, including devastating wildfires in Northern California. This already one of the worst fire seasons on record and more to come. As you can see, homes destroyed, vehicles destroyed. We'll go to a report in Northern California in just a moment. Also, the contentious confirmation hearings happening on Capitol Hill involving Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court. Today we enter day four of those hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee. We'll go live to Washington with a report on that. First though, let's get a check of the day's headlines. New employment numbers are in from the Labor Department. 201,000 jobs were created last month. Experts had been expecting right around 190,000. The unemployment rate holds steady at 3.9%. The trip previously unannounced, Defense Secretary James Mattis has arrived in Afghanistan to meet with Allied military commanders and the Afghan President Ashraf Ghani. The death toll after a strong earthquake in northern Japan has now climbed to 18. Dozens of people are still missing on the island of Hokkaido. New York and New Jersey launched new investigations into the Roman Catholic Church's handling of clergy sex abuse allegations. The number of similar inquiries around the country continues to grow. A raid in Bordentown, New Jersey on the home of Kate McClure and Mark D'Amico. They're accused of spending money raised through a GoFundMe effort on themselves and not on Johnny Bobbitt. He's the homeless man they said they tried to help after he loaned McClure money for gasoline. The GoFundMe effort raised $400,000 for Bobbitt, who says he received only $75,000. New York City can no longer claim the highest concentration of the uber-rich. That crown now goes to Hong Kong in a new survey. New York still comes in second, followed by Tokyo, Los Angeles, and Paris. Let's start in Northern California in the out-of-control Delta fire exploding to 22,000 acres, homes and vehicles destroyed. Mandatory evacuations are now in place. Let's go to ABC's Will Carr in Redding, California. Good morning, Witt. We're seeing some of the devastation from the Delta fire for the first time this morning. You can imagine exactly how this battle played out. Fire crews racing up, trying to spray this home down. You can see what's left of their hose this morning, but this home was incinerated. This uh, fire has burned 22,000 acres so far. At this point, it's 0% contained. There was those terrifying moments on Wednesday at I-5, not far from where we are now, where uh, truck drivers and drivers were trapped on the interstate as a wall of flame raced down uh, in their direction. Some had to get out and flee on foot, and their vehicles uh, were destroyed. Uh, like I said, there is still 0% containment. A lot of uh, the brush and uh, the trees in this area are just bone dry, perfect fuel uh, for this fire. It comes on the heels of the car fire, which took place in Redding, California, uh, just over a month ago. That fire destroyed more than 1,600 homes. At this point, this will be the worst wildfire season in California history. Fires have burned 1.2 million acres and destroyed uh, more than $845 million in property so far, and we still have several months to go. And the bad news is Cal Fire says at this point it's also running out of money. 
as the fight continues. Wit. Those precious funds drying up. Our thanks to Will Carr today. We want to turn to Washington now on the fiery confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh, President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court. Let's bring in ABC's Terry Moran, who covers the Supreme Court for us. Terry, we've already had three days of these contentious hearings. Walk us through some of the key points here, specifically some of the issues Democrats continue to bring up. Well, quieter today because Brett Kavanaugh, the nominee, is not here. He's finished his questioning last night. Today is a day for witnesses to come forward to say yay and nay on whether he should be confirmed. But you're right, it has been fiery. The protesters popping up like a, a whack-a-mole game throughout the audience have punctuated what have been very intense hours of questioning for Brett Kavanaugh. Democrats zeroing in, but really not getting much ground on what his views on on civil rights, on abortion, on presidential power especially might be. Uh, he has a very polished armor of evasiveness and a, and a very strong talent to not talk about specific cases. So they didn't really get much ground. They shifted ground a little bit and said he's not being straight with the committee that in fact, and the American people, that in fact, as they reach into the tens of thousands of confidential documents uh, from his days in the Bush administration, they found what they thought was a document they claim shows that he believes that the Supreme Court can overrule Roe versus Wade. He disputed that. And there are also these cryptic questions that they've been asking him again and again. Has he had inappropriate conversations about the Mueller probe? Listen in. I haven't had any inappropriate conversations about that investigation with anyone. I've never given anyone any hints, forecasts, previews, winks, nothing about uh, my view as a judge or how I would rule as a judge on, on that or anything related to that. So that's his outright denial, and that means that today is really put up or shut up day for the Democrats, especially Senator Kamala Harris, because she was the one who really bored in on that question. Uh, she says she's got very good reason for asking him it, and we wait and see if she can produce a witness who will say, I talked to Brett Kavanaugh about uh, the Mueller investigation. Here's what he said. Nothing yet. And I want to bring up a moment uh, involving New Jersey Senator Cory Booker threatening to release some of these confidential emails. And there was this whole back and forth, this exchange. And then in the end, uh, Republicans basically said that this was more of a show because those emails were already released. What happened there and, and what was uh, Senator Booker trying to get at? Well, he was, he was trying to get at, and all the Democrats are very frustrated by how much of the paper trail of Brett Kavanaugh through many years of public service has been kept confidential, not classified, but confidential for various reasons. And there are various people that can uh, claim confidentiality over certain documents of his government service. But a lot of them, it seems, were pointlessly rendered secret, essentially, and confidential, and the Democrats uh, decided that they wanted to make them public. For example, that, that one I mentioned about abortion, that was Kavanaugh's comments on an email that he got when he was the White House uh, secretary, staff secretary under George W. Bush, about an op-ed that somebody had written. Why is that not automatically public? And in it, he did say something which the Democrats argue suggests he's not a friend of Roe versus Wade. What Cory Booker was, was doing was releasing them, reading them before they had been cleared by the committee chairman, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. But then he came in yesterday after they had been cleared, and he said, I'm willing to be expelled from the Senate. He said somewhat comically, I am Spartacus. This is my I am Spartacus mm -hmm. moment. 
which when it turned out that in fact the document he was brandishing at that point had already been cleared and he risked no expulsion from the Senate, although he had read from that document late the previous night before it was cleared. So uh, he claims he, he did take a risk. It was all the kind of theatrics that we're getting out of here. A lot of sound and fury signifying nothing at the moment. And, and the theatrics you mentioned, is this all Terry at the end of the day, just a political exercise really? Is there, is there any real chance that Kavanaugh does not join the Supreme Court? Very little chance, Whit, because uh, they had an opportunity to try to paint a picture of this man as unfit for the Supreme Court for any kind of reason. And they, so far, it seems, based on what we're hearing from the senators who will decide his fate, not only have they failed to pick up Republican votes, which they need, Democrats being in the minority, but they're on the verge of losing moderate Democrats. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota have both said they've seen nothing in these hearings to disqualify him. And Democrats trying to make one final stand. Terry Moran, live for us. Thank you so much. We appreciate your insight. We do want to transition, though, head over to the White House across town in Washington. No doubt President Trump is watching all of this and the hearings closely. But there is something else that has consumed the president and much of his attention. The anonymous op-ed in the New York Times, allegedly written by one of his staffers. Let's bring in Karen Travers, who's live at the White House. And Karen, President Trump was at a rally in Montana last night, fuming publicly over all this. Karen? Yeah, this it was now day two for the president, fuming about this anonymous op-ed published in the New York Times on Wednesday afternoon. And last night at this rally in Montana, the president, not surprising, brings it up and says that he thinks the New York Times should publish the name of the person that wrote it. The president's really keying in on the anonymous angle of this. He's very upset that the Times allowed somebody to go and uh, slam his administration, slam his leadership, but not put their name on it. Yesterday, uh, the president called the person that wrote this a gutless coward. Take a listen. The latest act of resistance is the op-ed published in the failing New York Times by an anonymous, really an anonymous, gutless coward. Is it subversion? Is it treason? president said whatever it is it's horrible to him and the white house is now engaged in a frantic and furious game of who did it there is a scramble to figure out who it is there's a lot of speculation wit and there's also a lot of finger pointing and this was already a white house where people were always looking behind their backs looking over their shoulder to see who might be out there with a knife and this is not going to help that uh, feeling of distrust that there's somebody within the administration that is trying to thwart the president President's agenda and, and do it anonymously. Uh, there's a lot of talk about trying to root this person out through an investigation. There's talk on the Hill yesterday about lie detector tests. For now, it's not clear if they're going to go in that direction, but it certainly doesn't mean that the water cooler talk is going to die down as everybody points the finger and tries to figure out who it is. And Karen, there is a growing list now of denials from top cabinet officials essentially saying it wasn't me. Who are some of the notable <laughs> names on that list? Uh, among them, Vice President Mike Pence. Yeah, Vice President Mike Pence, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Attorney General, the list goes on and on and on. It was the cabinet yesterday coming out one by one, a really incredible flurry of denials. And in some ways, they're very much speaking to that audience of one. Uh, the president was said to be very pleased that these officials were coming out and denying it, and he was taking great interest in what each one said. So they're tailoring those denials very specifically to appeal to the president. But I think when you kind of peel this back, 
back a bit. Uh, after that initial flurry on Wednesday when it was first published of who is this senior official, it's not likely to be a cabinet member. So it could be many, many other senior officials. And you're certainly not going to see denials from hundreds and hundreds of them who work not just at the White House. These are people that could work across the administration, agencies, departments, not necessarily right here at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And the White House seems more concerned about who is behind the op-ed rather than mm -hmm. the substance of the op-ed and of course Bob Woodward's book which is getting a lot of attention as well but we'll have to leave that conversation for another day. Karen Travers thanks so much for joining us live from the White House we appreciate it. Thanks. And we want to transition now also in Washington Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos is expected to be sentenced today. Let's bring in ABC's Pierre Thomas and Pierre you've been following this very closely from the beginning. This is all part of his plea deal what are we actually expecting to play out in the courtroom today, Pierre? Well, George Papadopoulos is going to find out whether he is going to go to jail or not, whether he's going to go uh, to prison or not. His defense attorneys are saying that he deserves probation to be out, uh, not to go to prison. But the prosecutors have said that they don't believe that he fully cooperated and that they impeded that he impeded their investigation when they first started into the Russia probe. Just to help the viewers back at home, George Papadopoulos is, if not the first, uh, one of the first people in the Trump orbit, the Trump campaign that had communications, what we now, what, what prosecutors have said is a Russian operative. There's a pro professor who was based in London that uh, Papadopoulos was communicating with. And this professor, after going to Moscow, came back and told Papadopoulos that the Russians had uh, dirt on Hillary in the form of thousands of emails. And so, therefore, uh, the whole question of who he told about that, uh, the FBI confronted him about this uh, shortly after uh, early of 2017, and he said that he didn't basically know anything about this. Uh, that was a lie. He was among the first to plead guilty. So today we find out if he goes to jail. And Papadopoulos is, uh, to my understanding, is expected to speak at his sentencing hearing today. Do we have any idea of what he might actually say? Well, well, we'll have to see if that bears out. Typically what happens is the prosecutors will make their case to the judge about what they think should happen. Um, the defense will uh, have something to say, and the judge will uh, sometimes ask the defendant if uh, he or she has something to say. Uh, Papadopoulos' wife has been speaking a lot on his behalf in recent days, but he will be in court and he will have his chance as well. Pierre, is there any way to know at this point in the Mueller investigation how much um, Papadopoulos has actually helped in the information that he's provided to the investigators? Well, uh, he provided some information uh, based on a recent filing to the court by Mueller's team. They're not completely happy with the level of the co cooperation he did give. So uh, they're not completely happy. And again, uh, one of the key questions is, you know, how much was told to uh, people in Trump's orbit, in the campaign's orbit. Uh, the, one of the recent documents said that he could not recall uh, telling anyone in the Trump campaign about that conversation with the professor. Beyond today's sentencing, what is next for George Papadopoulos and the Mueller investigation, investigation as we get closer to the midterm election? Well, again, the key for Papadopoulos, uh, Papadopoulos today is he'll find out if he's going to prison. 
Uh, that will be a big moment for him. Uh, the Russia investigation from Mueller uh, continues at speed. Uh, there are a number of different fronts looking at whether there was collusion, the on-again, off-again uh, negotiations with uh, the Mueller team uh, and the uh, Trump personal attorneys in terms of whether he will uh, commit to a interview, be it written or oral or otherwise. So that is all ongoing. Uh, this, this case uh, is intensifying uh, as it goes down the stretch. And the White House has called on the investigation to be wrapped up before the midterms. But, of course, we are hearing nothing from Bob Mueller himself on that. Pierre Thomas in Washington, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yes. We are getting a rare look inside North Korea. Our Martha Raddatz was given special access, speaking to North Koreans and touring facilities as the country celebrates 70 years of existence. Let's take a look. Hey, Whit, we are coming to you from Pyongyang, North Korea. I am standing right outside the hotel. We are staying at a big, tall hotel where all the journalists are staying. A lot of delegations are here. A lot of tourists are here. In fact, let me go back to how we got in here. We flew here uh, from Beijing, get on the airplane. It was completely packed. Uh, I sat next to a young man, 23-year-old from Australia, who just wanted to come here to North Korea for the adventure of it and also to see these mass games uh, that will be happening sometime this weekend. There will also be a military parade at some point. Uh, they have really shown us around the city. It's highly choreographed. Uh, we do have uh, government minders with us at all times, but they have let us film pretty much out the window of any vehicle we're in, and it's usually big giant buses. Uh, that we're going around in. They invited about more than a hundred journalists from Europe, from Australia, from Canada, from the United States, into North Korea, largely to see this celebration for the uh, 70th anniversary of the founding of this nation. Uh, and that military parade, I'm sure, is part of it as well. Uh, we toured a silk factory today where they make silk and that was a pretty incredible sight to see all these workers take the silk out of the cocoons. Uh, we also interviewed a gentleman this evening, an 80-year-old man who is a professor at the university here and he talked about uh, peace and denuclearization and said it's his personal opinion. We hope He hopes the United States and North Korea can eventually find peace. But every day has been an adventure here. We're learning all kinds of things. It is the cleanest city uh, I've ever seen. Uh, very organized. There are not nearly as many people in the city as I thought there would be. This is my first trip, which I think is, is kind of amazing given my travels in this region and around the world. Uh, but it has been an eye-opening experience and will bring you more every day. Great talking to you, Whit. Our thanks to Martha Raddatz and the ABC News team. A fascinating look inside North Korea. Shifting gears, though, let's talk about football. The NFL season kicking off last night with the Eagles beating the Atlanta Falcons. Let's bring in Dominique Foxworth with ESPN. Dominique, thanks so much for joining us. A bit of a delay last night in the opening game, but what did the defending champions uh, show you in their season opener? Uh, that the defensive line matters. They won in part because the same reason why they won most of their games last year is because they're very deep up front. I was surprised to see that they made even more additions to that defensive line, and they prevailed because of that fact, not necessarily because of their quarterback, Nick Foles, who was the Super Bowl MVP. He didn't really play that well, but 
I mean, to be honest, he never really plays all that well with the exception of those final two playoff games, and they brought back that Philly special trick play. So he's also a receiver, apparently. <laughs> Absolutely, and Foles somehow has managed to find a way to get it done when it counts. Uh, Dominique, let's, aside from the Eagles defending champions, uh, who are some of the other teams that we're watching this year? Yeah, I think the Rams are probably the most interesting and exciting team that we have coming up this season. They have that young coach, Sean McVay, who's t a very talented offensive mind. He's turned Jared Goff into what people thought was a bust and to now a starting caliber quarterback. And they went in heavy on the defense. They paid stars from other teams, including Ndamukong Sue. They brought in Atib Khalib at corner and Marcus Peters at the other corner. It's a volatile team with a lot of talented players in L.A. I think they're going to be fun to watch. And for those of us engaged in fantasy football, I've got my lineup set and my two separate leagues all ready to go for this week. But uh, we've got a lot of players, some new players right. coming back, some, some, uh, some rookies, also players coming back from injury. Who are the players that you think we should watch this season? Yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting storylines and players in the league this year, but I think Jalen Ramsey is the guy who comes to mind. He's a cornerback for the Jacksonville Jaguars, and given that we're talking about all these, uh, I've been watching the show, and there's a bunch about anonymous writers and people lying and deceiving, Jalen Ramsey is a breath of fresh air when it comes to people being anonymous, because he's not afraid to, to speak out. He's called out just about every quarterback in the league. He said uh, uh, that um, Rob Gronkowski was overrated. He's gone in hard this whole offseason, and he's need he needs to back up this trash talk, and he has the chance to do it this weekend against um, Odell Beckham, who just got paid a lot of money. He's the best receiver in the league, some would say. He's at least top three, and Jalen Ramsey has his first chance to back up all that very honest and non-anonymous trash yep. talk that he's had all offseason. And Odell Beckham Jr. coming back from a devastating injury as well. A lot of people right. watching to see uh, what happens with him this season. Another big talker also as we head into the year, the national anthem controversy and Nike in a big statement this week by making Colin Kaepernick really the face of their new campaign. We're showing our viewers here uh, this ad that aired uh, on opening night uh, in the NFL. This already generating a lot of talk. Some people have been boycotting Nike, posting videos, burning Nike shoes. What do you think will happen? How, how does this set the tone as the new season gets underway? Yeah, quite honestly, I think the anthem protests or anthem demonstrations that guys have had have started to die down. And, and interestingly enough, we won't see it come back to life unless someone else like Donald Trump, it came back to life when Donald Trump called the players SOBs. It kind of was reinvigorated when um, the CEO of the Texans had that comment that was racially charged about inmates. And then it was reinvigorated once again when the NFL passed the rule change that, that threatened to penalize players. The NFL has since backed off that rule. And as long as they remain in this state of kind of impasse, I think that the players will back off of those demonstrations. We saw last night Malcolm Jenkins did not raise his fist. That's what he's been doing. He's the safety for the, for the Eagles, who's been very outspoken and a leader of the Players Coalition. He didn't raise a fist during the national anthem. I honestly think this will go away unless our president brings it back to light. Interesting. Yeah, and last night, the opening game, we saw the players on the field, and they were all standing there um, and right. participating. Dominique Foxworth, thank you so much with ESPN. We appreciate it getting that football season underway. That does it for us, all of us here on ABC News Live. If you want to follow that story and all the stories we're following, you can go to abcnews.com or download the ABC News app for breaking news alerts. I'm Whit Johnson in New York. Have a great afternoon.